Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts, follow hashtag AskTheGeographer on Twitter for the latest updates. International aid is far more than a flow of money. Whilst it's an economic exchange, it's also one that's shaped by geopolitics and geographical imaginations about place, especially so in terms of who we define as a traditional donor and recipient of aid. And this landscape is changing. National and global shifts are affecting these so-called traditional donors and recipients. In this podcast, we're joined by Dr. Emma Maudsley from the University of Cambridge. We'll be discussing global development and the benefits of aid to the UK economy. My name's Emma. I'm in the geography department at the University of Cambridge, and I work on the politics of international development. So, Emma, when geographers use the term international aid, is it always in reference to finance, to global flows of money, or is it much more than that? All aid has a monetary value. Um, So aid comprises things like loans, where you pay some interest back on it, and grants, which is free, you you, you get uh, awarded a grant. It can pay for consultants. Um, It can pay for things like technical assistance, so upgrading transport systems, for example, or medical training. And it pays for goods and services, so like the humanitarian delivery of food and medicine. Aid also pays for things like research that we do, studentships, and it covers some of the funds for global organisations like the World Health Organisation and things like that. So all of these have costs, but they are also really political as well. So it's not just a sort of flow of money. It's also a way of conducting foreign policy, of power and and of making kind of imaginative geographies, uh, thinking around the world. So what are the dangers of conflating development as merely a nation's GDP? It is a massive problem. So first of all, GDP is just one metric for thinking about what the economic health of a nation is. It tells you something. It tells you something about the aggregate amount of uh, economic resource within a country. And it's useful in as much as that's all it says. But it says nothing about how the growth is coming about. So if a country is growing very fast, but it turns out that it's unsustainably extracting oil, it's very probable that that's not a long-term solution, particularly if that money is not going into creating other forms of uh, growth. So it says nothing about how the growth is coming about. So you could be a country could be improving its GDP and we don't quite, that doesn't say how. And then the second thing that GDP doesn't tell you um, is how it's distributed. So you could have two countries with rising GDP that look exactly the same on GDP figures, but one country, everyone's doing better, and in another country, just a tiny elite are doing better. And most of us would say that development needs more than just a tiny elite to do well. So we can think of examples like uh, the United States and the United Kingdom are both quite high GDP countries. I mean, the US is the biggest in the world, and yet it's very uneven. We're the two of the most uneven economies of all richest countries. So if we compare Scandinavia 
They've also got high GDP, but they've got a much better set of development indicators than the UK and the US. So GDP is problematic as a when it's taken just to mean development economically. And then there's a second thing about GDP, that money does matter. Um, you do need uh, economic robustness and well-being. But the broader um, things that make up what we think of as development, we can think about our own lives, what is development. It's not just about having money, it's about having health, well-being, sustainability, community, justice, um, having a voice. So these aren't all simply brought about by money. So development is a much bigger concept than economic growth. And economic well-being should be a bigger concept than GDP. And we do see this in the development community, even within the sort of mainstream development community. Of course, they recognise things like the Human Development Index. And nowadays, the Sustainable Development Goals have a very multidimensional idea of what development is. But it's interesting how often the temptation is to slip back to GDP as the measure of development. And it's a very poor measure of development. In terms of aid, historically, who have been traditional donors and recipients? It's really interesting, this one. You can depend on how you define it, because you could say that China and India have been traditional donors. China and India both have development cooperation partnerships that date back to the 1950s and 60s, just as long as um, many Western donors. But what it tends to mean when we say a traditional donor, we tend to mean the industrialized countries or if you want to call them the developed countries or high income countries. And these are the overwhelmingly members of what's called the Development Assistance Committee uh, or the DAC, which is part of the OECD, which is the kind of rich country club, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So even here, though, it's interesting that Japan is, was a very early member uh, of the, the DAC, this club of industrialized country donors. So they tend to be thought of as the tradition, so-called traditional countries, traditional donors. Um, and who are the traditional recipients? You can do the same trick and you can say, actually, the earliest recipients was Europe, uh, post-war Europe in the 19, late 1940s and 50s, who received um, substantial flows of aid from the United States to reconstruct Europe after the devastation of the Second World War. And it was as Europe came out of that, and of course, um, in all of Cold War politics and the achievements of independence by many um, parts of the world, that Europe moved to being providers of development assistance. So what we tend to mean, though, when we talk now about traditional recipients is we've usually meant poorer countries in the third world, uh, the global south. And of course, this is uh, something that's still the case today. There is still a strong north-south axis, but it's changing very fast. How have these associations shaped global landscapes of power and broad understandings of development? So this is really interesting. It's very strong. So what the outcome of aid um, has been, in some cases, it's been problematic. It's done more harm than good. In other cases, aid has had some um, very positive outcomes. But whether you're supportive or critical of foreign aid, whatever you think its purposes are, there is no doubt that it has been caught up with all sorts of power in, in the world. And we can think of this maybe in three ways. So economic, geopolitical, and imaginative. So the North has been able to set the economic agenda for the world. So back in the 50s and 60s, this was much more state-led. And then in the 80s and 90s, it's been much more market-led. 
And that has been very strongly directed by um, the, the northern powers, the industrialized countries. So there's an economic dimension to shape how aid has shaped global landscapes. Geopolitically, of course, foreign aid has been used as a, as a foreign policy tool to support friends and to tackle enemies. And that's for whether it's about the Cold War or uh, the so-called war on terror and so on. And then geographers are also interested in this third idea of power, which is how we frame the world, how we think about the world, what our imaginations look like. And for many people, if you sort of went out onto the street of the UK and asked questions, um, they would perhaps have a distorted idea of the world. So the, the classic example is Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa, a huge continent, enormous kind of variation and uh, wealth as well as poverty and so on. But aid and development and all of the sort of cultural um the novels, the films, the uh, pictures, the news that comes with it have helped shape an idea as uh, Africa is simply a place of, of extreme poverty and quite often violence and things like that. So even as it, in some cases, you know, many people are trying to uh, improve the world through providing technical assistance and humanitarian and so on, we have to be careful about, about these simplistic scripts of who's got the advanced societies and who hasn't. And again, this is something that different NGOs, lots and lots of academics have criticised this and have tried to, and, and but other kind of Kenyan, there's a, some brilliant sort of Kenyan novelists and, and others who, and many people who are trying to remind us that the world is much more complex than this. And our ideas of development need to be much more subtle. So we could ask ourselves, is it in the UK uh, we have millions of lonely elderly people. In the US, holidays are almost uh, non-existent, they're so short, and it has immense problems with race and racism and so on. So we have to ask ourselves, what is development? And remind ourselves that countries all around the world are more varied than we sometimes um, frame them through this lens of the North as the generous donor and the South as needy recipient. And how are these landscapes changing because of rising power countries? Oh, this is revolutionary. It's it's a really interesting time to be teaching and thinking about um, international development. So um, for a long time, when I was teaching and learning about development, it was classic north-south. And in the last decade and more, this has changed so much. So these rising, so-called rising powers, of course, some of them have been development partners for a very long time. So, for example, India provided scholarships to Egypt back in the 1950s. But now what's really changed is they're much, much more economically and politically powerful. So a few are providing almost equivalent or equivalent finances to some northern countries, particularly through big new development banks and lines of credit and things like that. Most aren't. Most are still relatively small, but they really punch above their weight. They they really, between them, the large and small, uh, sort of the, the big rising powers, but also the emerging, smaller emerging economies of the South are massively shifting global gravity to the to the South and the East, economically and to some extent politically and so on. So this is having a huge impact on the international development regime. All of a sudden, northern countries are having to compete. So Angola can turn around and say, OK, 
if you don't want to give us money, China will. And that makes us think, oh, right, okay, maybe the West can't throw its weight around quite so much as it once did. And it's given a, a very strong sense of dignity and sovereign respect within the South, that it's no longer um, quite so open to being pushed around by the North through aid and development. Southern partners can bring new ideas and different ways of working as well, which can be very welcome. Uh, it doesn't mean it's beyond criticism. And some of the work I do is as a critical friend to what's called South-South cooperation. So um, South-South cooperation is open to many of the same critiques as North-South cooperation. And we need to recognise where it's different but also share some of the problems and see some of the problems that it has. So building a dam in Ethiopia can bring irrigation water, it can bring electricity uh, that's very much needed, it can create jobs, and those can be very positive things for many Ethiopians. But it can also lead to displacement, a lack of sustainability, and we have to ask ourselves where the profits go, who gets the risk and who gets the reward. And whether it's China building the dam or the USA, some of those questions are similar. Um, so in many ways, we see a revolutionary change in some ways in the, in the global landscape, but old problems raising their heads as well. So you've mentioned here, you know, increasing engagement by BRICS nations. How are MINTs shaping global development and governance? They're really interesting. So countries like Turkey, for example, and Indonesia, uh, Mexico, they, whereas India and China and Brazil are big enough to really stand out alone if they want, um, and they're kind of cooperating on some things and standing by themselves on others, often the, the mints are playing a more of a bridging role. So in Mexico, it's interested potentially in joining the DAC and it's cooperating with some of the new global organizations Turkey is hosting um, new centres from the UN, but at the same time, they're still uh, making it clear that they identify themselves as southern powers and southern states and as different and as also being able to draw on the principles and the um, practices of South-South cooperation. So they, act, they in some ways, um, act in, in bridging, bridging roles. Um, Korea is similar as well. Korea is now a member of the DAC, so it's a member of this club of so-called traditional donors. But at the same time, it's got more in common in some ways with, say, Japan and with China than it has with, let's say, um, Canada or Norway. So it's good to recognise that this isn't just about the BRICS versus, you know, the South versus the North in terms of big power politics, but that, that the South and the North are much more varied than that. How might these new dynamics shape the outcomes of the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, it's certainly critical that the southern states are involved as um, active leaders of the Sustainable Development um, Goal process and not simply seen as the passive recipients of, of the North. There are lots of interesting ways to think about this. So partly countries like China are really now essential partners in any anti-poverty efforts in global growth efforts and in sustainability efforts, of course. So within their own countries, these are very big problems to tackle. What's really interesting, there are signs now of 
what we could call south to north learning. So um, in countries like Mexico and Brazil, they have really pioneered things like conditional cash transfers. So um, ways of kind of innovative forms of um, financing poor families to educate their children and so on. And in some countries, they're also pioneering and innovating around universal basic incomes. So even countries like China and India are facing questions of uh, job loss, automation, 3D printing and so on, and, and need to think very innovatively around jobs. And in the West, too, we're seeing um, questions about hunger, inequality, jobs, um, vaccines. These are really increasingly global goals. So we share climate change as a massive issue, even if the outcomes and the responsibilities, the, the West has more responsibility for climate change than the South. So it's great that the southern states are growing in voice. They've got more resources. They're sharing their knowledge. And I think that we shouldn't see this just as like the big BRICS economies working in Africa. But we should also see it in terms of what the West can learn and how we can partner both, say, not just in Africa, but in Glasgow or Tennessee or Cambridge to think about how we collectively tackle these massive global challenges. So I guess thinking domestically now in the UK, how powerful are tabloids in shaping public understanding of UK aid and development? Unfortunately, they appear to be far too powerful. Um, so the classic example is the Daily Mail. And you could argue that it, you know, we need investigative journalism and we need robust journalism. Our aid and development organisations, uh, whether it's NGOs or the Department for International Development, have to be held to account. And they do make mistakes and they do things that w the public need to know about. So that's good. The problem is that particularly the Daily Mail isn't really interested in investigative journalism, it's waging a campaign regardless of the truth. And it's waging a very um, hostile campaign. So the problem with the Daily Mail is um, that it's not um, really particularly knowledgeable, or I think actually they do know, I think the journalists and editors do know about this, but they tell very simple stories. The aid is simply a transfer of um, money from the UK to other countries, those other countries are, don't need it or they waste it, and so it's useless. And they don't talk about shared global goals. They don't talk about British foreign policy. Rightly or wrongly, a lot of aid comes back to us through um, it benefits us economically and otherwise. Whether that's a right and proper thing or not is another question, but there's no question it does benefit the UK a great deal. So we get um, economic advantages, we get influence in global um, governance. And we also contribute to things that matter to us, like global disease control, like climate change. So we, have, we, we can't sit on our little island and say we're not part of this. I'm afraid that the sea level will still rise all around us. And I think there is another way of thinking about this is that sometimes um, the Daily Mail is criticised by progressives, left-wingers, Guardian readers, because it says we shouldn't be spending money abroad, we should be spending it on our um, country. And I think 
This is a reasonable question to ask. We should ask that question. Is it right when we have growing poverty in our own country, growing numbers of people using food banks? Uh, we know that there is uh, real problems in, in Britain right now, um, and they're getting worse. So should we be spending aid in India or Ghana or elsewhere? And my argument would be is that we could cut every last penny of aid tomorrow, and I don't think it would improve the condition of poor people in the UK. The reason that people are poor in the UK is because of decisions that the government is making around corporation tax, around tax, around spending, around welfare. So the people who want to cut aid don't want to give it to poor people. They want to give it to corporate tax reduction. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask, but um, I think there's lots of reasons why that relationship is not so simple. And the other thing is that um, at its best, aid should be supporting things that work for everyone in the world, like um, the development of vaccines and, the de and uh, antibiotics and um, climate change and so on. So Unfortunately, to ask, answer your question, I think these tabloids like the Daily Mail, and it's not the only one, are powerful shapers of public opinion, but of a section of the public. And it's a shame um, those people are sort of denied a, a more accurate um, analysis and journalism, good journalism, of what aid really is and where it fails and where it succeeds. Where do you envisage the UK's aid and development strategies changing in context of complex problems such as Brexit? Yes, the Brexit question. Um, well, um, first of all, the UK is going to become less influential in the world, in global development circles. Until now, um, Britain has punched above its weight in global uh, institutions and global policymaking in relation to development because DFID is a relatively well-funded agency. It's also really a leading thinking agency about development policy. I wouldn't say it always thinks in the right way, but it, it does a really good job and it's very influential and it's very well supported by high quality um, civil servants and so on. And we're going to lose some of that because as we come out of the European Union, we're coming out of the most influential block in international development. Um, so that will lose us some power in the UN and in other development circles. It's going to deepen existing trends. And some of those existing trends are not just about Brexit, but Brexit's going to make them go faster. I think we're going to have uh, more stress on using our aid and development to work in partnership with middle income countries like India and China. And in some ways, this isn't a bad thing. Um, the question is, Who's going to benefit? Is it going to be poor people or rich people? But we do need to adjust our aid strategies to recognise the new geographies of poverty and wealth. And there are reasons to work in partnership in India, within India, and in partnership with India in other places like Uganda, say. But we're, there's going to be more pressure to make aid work in the private sector interest, um, which is already happening, and that's going to get stronger, I think. And something that recent governments have been talking a lot about is aid has to work in the national interest. Um, and it always has. Aid has always worked in the national interest, but it, it's been sort of hidden very often. And now it's becoming more open again. And the national interest, you know, first of all, we can ask, well, what do we mean by that? Is the City of London the national interest or are 
um, poor people the national interest or the corporate sector. So I'm always interested by this phrase, the national interest, because my interest is really not the same as um, a tax avoidance consultant in uh, the city of London, let's say. Uh, my national interest is very different to, to that person's. So I think that the, the what the government says is that the national interest can be a mutually beneficial interest, a win-win situation. And that's quite possible. It's just because aid might work in the national interest. It doesn't mean it works against the interest of the partner country, but it's not automatic either. Um, so Brexit, I think, is going to speed up um, existing trends, which is declining British influence, um, the growing pressure to build geopolitical and economic relations with countries like India, and a growing capitulation, if you like, or a growing courtship of the private sector um, as, as the conduit for development, um, consultancy and contracting, and a growing um, emphasis that aid serves the national interest. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discover the latest updates on learning resources and events, visit rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore ibg schools.